Today on episode number 451, Course Trailers Revisited with Rob Park. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, Rob Park comes back on Teaching in Higher Ed to talk about those wonderful videos we can send out in advance of our courses to get students excited about taking them, otherwise known as course trailers. Rob is an associate professor of information technology practice in the information technology program at the University of Southern California. He established the Connected Devices and Making Minor at USC to teach non-engineering students to create internet-enabled hardware devices, and he currently serves as the lead faculty for the Gateway Programming course, whose mission is to introduce and excite non-computer science majors to the world of programming. Rob has a strong interest in inclusive teaching practices and has been actively involved in addressing issues of inclusion and equity, both within USC and externally. He served as general chair of the 2021 CMD-ITACM Richard Tapia Celebration of Diversity in Computing Conference, which encourages and supports diversity within computing. Outside of academia, Rob has a lifelong love of technology, from the technical to the creative, with professional experience in software development, information technology, web design, audio engineering, film, TV post-production, and digital media. Rob Park, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me, Bonnie. I'm, I'm thrilled to be back here. You and I are going a little retro today. You have made what I called a course trailer and what you called something else. But <laughs> to start out with, we're actually just going to play the audio from the course trailer. And then once it's done, I'm going to invite you to share what we would have been seeing if we had had the whole picture because this is intended as a video. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And let's take it away and, and have a look and listen to your course trailer. Hey, everyone. If you want to build devices that can change people's lives for the better, such as medical devices and wearables, if you're interested in hardware entrepreneurship or startups, or if you just want to create something cool with electronics, check out ITP348. If you've taken at least one programming class, IT348 is a great option. I'm Rob Park, and I teach IT348 Making Smart Devices, Introduction to Wearables. ITP348 is a hands-on, interactive course where you'll learn how to build and program smart devices. You'll leverage your software programming skills with hardware development and cloud connectivity so you can build things like wearables that measure heart rate, cloud IoT dashboards, Bluetooth cars that you control with your phone, e-textiles and fashion projects, 
and many more. I have worked to create an engaging learning environment where every class is interactive, with most of our time spent building projects instead of lecturing. We also have an extensive resource on the course website, and all lectures and class times are also recorded for you to watch later. Here are some great examples of past students' final projects. IP348 is open to all students, regardless of major, and it counts as an elective for many minors and majors. The only prereq is an introductory programming course. You don't need to have any prior electronics experience, and I promise that we're focusing on building electronic devices, and there is no math or physics involved. Please email me, Rob Park, at park at usc.edu with any questions. I hope to see you in class. All right, Rob. So we were not able to see what was happening during that course trailer. So you will now recreate it through interpretive dance. No, you're going to recreate it through what were some of the visual features that were included in this video? So it's a lot of my face. So I'm I'm on about one third of the screen. And then the other two thirds is text that kind of comes up for most of the video. And then behind me is kind of a actually my wife's she's a therapist. It's her private practice office. And I can talk more about that in a minute, but it's there's some lights and there's some simple background decorations to kind of set set the scene. And then sort of when the, the music really picks up, what does get lost on a podcast is that instead of having just text show up, I'm actually inserting clips of students' final projects in this particular class. So that's what you see for maybe 20 seconds or so. And then it comes back to me talking. All right. So I went, one of the things that stood out to me from having watched it, I think you sent it to me a couple, two, three months ago, is the visual image of the student's final project. So before we kind of get into how you created this, why you created this, would you talk a little bit about the class and specifically what it's all culminating toward? Sure. So this is a class that that I created in 2019, and it's designed for students who, I teach software programming classes for people that aren't majoring in computer science. So these these could be, they could be an engineer studying chemical engineering, or they could be a history major, anything across the university. So it was a, the class, the, the second class a student could take. They take one class in programming. They know a little bit about that. And then they could take this class where they learn to build, I mean, the term is sort of smart devices, but that's kind of a, not a very descriptive term. But imagine anything that is like your, your, your thermostat at your house, your house or your office that you can control with your phone. That could be a smart device, a, a wearable, a smartwatch, a Fitbit, Apple, that could be a smart device. So it's essentially a small piece of electronics that you can write code to, usually connects to the internet. So students learn about electronics, they learn about wiring, a little bit more about programming, about connecting to the cloud. And so the class culminates in the last month of the class, they get to build their own final project. So it's like, I give them some parameters, but I really want them to have fun and build something that's interesting for them. And they all have such diverse backgrounds that it's fun to see them put, them put it in a play. So they, they take a month, they come up with the idea. And I just kind of say, hey, look, as long as it's got a te- some sensors, a temperature sensor, a motor, whatever, and it fits these categories, I'll let you build mostly whatever you want. So in that part you were talking about, I'm just showing maybe five or six or seven little videos because I, ha- I try to have students record videos of their final projects. 
You and I have been friends for years, and the very first half of the first sentence that you say in the video goes like this. If you want to build devices that can change people's lives, dot, dot, dot. I remember you saying, this is probably, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now, was a lot of people used to want to make apps to for dating apps, that kind of thing. So hmm. you did try to instill more of a socially minded, bringing some good into the world. I don't know if that tends to be a challenge for you anymore or a kind of parameter you still... Yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. So that was, I used to teach a mobile development class and making mobile apps. And yeah, exactly as you said, it was, I let them choose their own project and and half of them were dating apps or how to find a party. And I just, <laughs> after three semesters of that, I was like, come on, friends, like you, like you can't, we, we got all this great knowledge, you got to fix something else. So I let them choose their own project, but I said it had to have some sort of social benefit. And I, I didn't care what it wasn't some didn't have to be a cause that I they thought I would like. It's just something that was important to them. And that was that was really impactful. What I found with this class, the electronics class, is that I don't know, probably lots of reasons, but a lot of the projects already veer towards helping other people. And so I haven't kind of had to sort of draw a box around like, okay, let's let's at least categorize it a certain way. But I, I do encourage them to do that. And I've had students that I mean it shows in the video, someone makes a a smart smart cane, like a walking stick for someone who's visually impaired. There's this, also in the video is a spoon for someone that might have mobility issues and it would help them eat. So I've, I, I kind of encourage them in this class that to still sort of think about like, who could benefit from this outside of, of you. And I've at least kept it, kept it as kind of a, a philosophy without having to set a strict boundary because students have made, they've made like musical instruments and they've made a lot of things like that. So I'm, I'm a little more flexible with that because I, I haven't gotten 15 how to find a party app. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's, I think that's really, I don't know, I, students have lots of opportunity to build really cool things, but not a lot of maybe encouragement or opportunities to, to think about someone other than themselves that they want to build for. So I, I do kind of keep that as a, a marker of, of, yeah. of, of parameters if, if possible. You and I don't have a lot in common as far as the context in which we teach. You teach at a very large, more research-oriented institution. I teach at a very small, more teaching-oriented institution, just for one example of how we are teaching in very different contexts. But we do have something in common, and that is that our institutions, I think people who work there, would tend to be more likely to describe them as a residential experience that, you know, mm. not, not as much emphasis placed on online classes. And you and I have been, let's just say, teaching online more than perhaps some of our colleagues. Talk a bit about why you decided to make a course trailer, a video promotion for this particular class. What was some of the background behind why you thought it might be helpful? So I've always struggled with enrollment for this class. This class started in, in fall of 2019. So the second time I ever taught it was in the first semester of the pandemic. And so it's a it's all hands-on. Like we all have little little pieces and kits. And so making a new class, it's an elective too, I should say that. So so there's not not a built-in audience for the class. And we don't in my department, we never had a a, a hardware physical class. So it's like the first class of its kind, and, I, and I'm not saying that as a, I'm bragging about that. We, there's not a, a, students don't know that these kind of classes exist, right? Because so there's not an audience for that. So 
our minimum general minimum guideline is 12 students to make the class work. So I think the first semester I got, I had eight and they said, well, it's the first time you can let that go. And the pandemic, I think I had 15 the first semester. And then, and then we were going to be online. I mean, permanently online for a while. So students were like, and administrators were like, this isn't, how is this going to work? It's a physical hardware class. And I I was like, I'm going to put all these kits together. I'm going to send things out. So both the sort of skepticism maybe of, of a hardware class being online and also just there's a lot of classes. It's an elective. It's hard to get traction. And so for every semester, I, I, was, I would market it. So I would, I would figure out what students groups on campus might, what like their interests align, align with the, the class. Like there's hardware classes, there's some entrepreneurship classes, there's some classes where students will go and teach electronics or in programming to like elementary students around campus. So those kinds of groups, I would send them an email. Then I would go to former students and I'd look at advisors of other departments who might have some overlap. And I would send them this email that I wrote that I thought was like trying to make it exciting, trying to be honest about the class. I have pictures. And so I did that for five, four or five semesters. And every time I would get like, I would just barely get over the 12 threshold. I think at most I had 20, but usually it was like 14 to 15 students. But students that would take the class would say, now that I took this class, like I really loved, it was one of my favorite classes. I got to build something physical. So I knew, I knew that like students enjoyed it, but they just couldn't figure find out about it. And I thought, well, I'm sending these emails every semester, all these, I have a list of people I email. And I, I also, I should also say it's, it's an engineering class where you build things. So there's a lot of students that aren't engineers and they think, well, it's going to be math and physics heavy, so I shouldn't take it. But it's, it's not, right? That's not how we design it. So I thought I was doing everything that I could, right? But it just couldn't get enrollment. So my wife is a, used to be a professor. She's also a psychologist. And she's working on creating an, on, an online program for high school and college students who are struggling with anxiety. So it's kind of like a learning coping strategies. And so for about a, a year, she and I have been learning you know, video editing, video production. And that's, that's why it's in her office. We kind of set up her office to look welcoming and inviting on, on camera, even though it's obviously welcoming in person, making that translate to cameras. So I just, as I've been learning about this and getting ready to help her, and I thought, I mean, she's talking a lot about communicating with high school and college students and the importance of like video. And I thought, well, I mean, we were going to be in her office doing some recording one day. And I thought, Maybe I'll just try, just try this, right? What's, what, what could I harm? We already have it set up. The camera's there, the lighting's there. And I also thought, well, I, you know, I'm editing videos for my wife. Maybe I'll get some practice just doing it for myself. So I wrote out a script because I thought I've watched my wife do these videos and it, I forced myself to write a script so I could keep, keep it timely. So just after like, I don't know, six hours of recording at her, her office, I just decided, oh, I'll just try it. I'll just like, get in front of the camera and do this two minutes. And so that was, I was kind of on a whim, but I thought maybe this would help. And I was shocked after struggling for, like I said, five semesters, six semesters to get enrollment up. I had 25 students, which is the, the cap. It filled up three days of registration. And then there was another 25 on the wait list. And I, I was like, nothing, I did nothing different. Mm-hmm. Everything was the same. It was the same email that I sent out, the same student groups I contacted, the same advisors. The only thing that was different was in the email, which used to, you know, had pictures. I put this short video and that was it. That was the only thing that changed. And I was just pretty blown away by how impactful that was as a, as a medium of communication. I'm, I mean, obviously, you know, video is important, but I don't typically record videos. And if I do, they're more Zoom lectures where I don't have a script. I'm kind of just 
try to keep it short, but I'm still sort of rambling. So this was higher production script. I just the impact was was significantly noticeable. So I was yeah pleasantly. I was delighted, obviously, and very happy. It is so rare in situations like this that we actually have constants that the same groups, same through email, but just the video part was different. So were the pictures still in the email? And then in addition to it, there was a video or pictures are gone. Now it's a video. Well, I mean, in the, in the email, I, I had kind of like four or five, like a banner almost of, mm-hmm. of some projects put together. I think so. That was the same. Okay. But the, the video, the video was different. And then did you have a screenshot that ended up linking to the video so they could tell as soon as they opened up the email, this email has a video in it? Or did it just say, basically, like, click here to go access the video? Do you know what I'm saying? A text-based yes. link or an image that looked like you were about to click on something that would take you to a video? It was an image that looked like it was going to take you to that. So I'm very grateful to my amazing wife because she's been getting these ready for her, this program she's launching so I kind of learned the strategies of like having a link that says, here's the video. That's fine. I did have that, like in mm-hmm. case the video didn't load, but like I made sure to like take a screenshot of the, because I, I use Gmail. I don't have like a sort of a fancy, sophisticated email program. So I, I figured I just took a screenshot of the video, dropped a video icon on oh, the image. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. it looked like a, you click it and then linked that to the YouTube. So that way I knew the video, I, I just sometimes in, at least in Gmail or like sometimes I send it through Blackboard. Like embedding the video gets lost, the actual video gets lost. So I, I sort of cheated by putting a picture of what looked like a video that would then link to that. To that. That's so helpful. So, I mean, first of all, congratulations. What a wonderful set of results. And I think that so much when I get a chance to meet someone, a lot of times technology comes up pretty quick. I imagine the same is the case <laughs> for you, Rob. I think people might walk away from our conversation thinking that what they need is to have a, a partner who is making videos and already has the light set up, have to have all the most expensive, has to have an exquisite script. And while there is not a way in this case that I can prove my hypothesis, but I'm still going to share it with you anyway, (laughs) Rob, I think it wasn't the script. I think it wasn't the lighting. I think it wasn't, I mean, yes, these things helped to get someone to click, but once they got there, I think what they got to experience is a authentic, engaging, delightful person. And to so often, sadly, people's perceptions of online classes are such that I'm not going to have someone who's engaging. I'm not going to have someone that cares about me and cares about the world and making it better through the things that we learn. I mean, like, like I think that it overcame so many potential concerns that people might have about any class, but it's just that online learning has historically kind of gotten a bad rap when we don't apply those same criteria to an in-person class and make sure that the person's going to be engaging and make sure that they're going to care about me as a learner and mm-hmm. they're going to care about making the world better and changing people's lives the way that you described from your earliest words in the video. So I, I do know that you did have the same secret superpower, and that is that your first take or maybe your first series of takes, you, you got a little coaching from someone. <laughs> what was the coaching that you got that maybe helped take it to the level where it got to be where it is today. Yeah. So my, you know, my, my wife behind the camera. Has yes. the, uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think, think it was um, the first line that you, you needed a little help to go. Oh, you know. I, yes. I think I remember what is it? What is it? I said, it was something that I was, I, I think I said, like, 
hello friends or something. The way I said it, she she's like it sounds like you you sound sort of like an alien speaking to two other humans. And I think that sort of shifted me in thinking about it. And I I I think that if I can at least comment on your hypothesis, I think you're hundred percent right. And I don't have a, a control either, but I hope that no one would think, well, I don't have a camera and I don't have lighting and I don't have someone to help film me. So I can't do this. Like not at all. Not, and I don't think that's true at all. I think the production has been fun. I already had it set up. So I did it. Like that's why I did, that's why I did it. But I don't think that was important. I think exactly what you said is what I believe that I'm trying to convey to students who, who I am, what I'm, what I'm going to, what I'm going to be like in class and what, but also what they can do. Cause that's really the whole point is like, it's a class that they don't fully understand and, and who would, right. If you haven't taken it and it's online, like you said, so there's already like two kinds of mysteries of like, Oh, is this because the class is, it's a fair amount of work. So do I want to take class that is a question mark? So if I can show them, like you said, I'm going to, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be present. I'm going to be as engaged as I can. I care about you. I care about you as students and your development. And, and like, I mean, I did think a lot about that first line you said, like, if you want to make devices that change people's lives. So it's like, very impactfully at first saying, hey, this is what you can do in the class. And then a few seconds later, I'm going to show you what other people have done in your exact same position that are coming from where you are with no prior experience. And so did it, did it need to be done in the way I did it? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I would say if you're, if you're going to do it, and I say this as someone that doesn't like to write a script because I just like to, to, to speak, I think that can be helpful. It doesn't have to be perfect at all, but some talking points of where you kind of want to go. And thinking like, kind of like what I just said, what's at the very beginning, what's kind of, I don't like to say attention grabbing, because I don't mean it to be manipulative, but like, what do you, what do you, what are they going to get out of this? Like, what are students going to benefit from? And then if there's any way, and maybe if students are writing papers and discussing ideas, maybe it's harder to, to show something for that, but, but do try to do that. And also the last thing I'll add, and I'll, I'll stop talking is even if it's, even if students are writing papers and there's nothing to really show, perhaps try to. If you can, and I know you, you might have to like, if you're using iMovie or some other program, it, you might have to, to do something and maybe this is too much. But if you can have any visual like that occasionally pops up every 10, 15 seconds, whatever it is, just maybe text on the screen. It can be a picture of students, like I had in the video, students working on projects together or collaborating online or whatever it would be. It's just something that it's not just us as an instructor talking for two minutes straight. That's even if you're super engaging, that's a hard sell. So some text, some like, bullet points, some some key ideas, and keep it short. Definitely keep it short, like a trailer. Yeah, you, re- you sharing about this is reminding me of a real transition I had in my teaching. It's been modeled from so many prior guests to, to create high structure in classes. So I do tend to be one of those like you. I can talk off the cuff and I can go in, but to have a planned active learning activity, I've just learned time and time again the importance of structuring that and having mm. times, this is going to take two minutes, this is four minutes, and and really thinking through that really pays off, both in terms of the learning that gets to be facilitated during that time, but also saves me time in the long run because while I can do it in the moment, it's a little bit stressful, and it's nice to just to be able to relax having thought through timing and things like that. and. We can do that with video, too, and it's not something that I naturally do. So if I was going to sit down and record, I might just start talking, but I think you're right, at least having bullet points, especially being something two minutes, yeah. that's that's a tough time frame. And I wanted to encourage people that it can seem like video editing would be incredibly hard. 
there is one hurdle, and that hurdle is learning how to edit on a timeline. So we're used to in Microsoft Word, when you're editing, moving paragraphs around, that's generally speaking a comfortable thing for people to do. Or in Excel, you're moving data or formulas from one cell to another cell. Well, in video or audio editors, you're editing on the timeline from zero when it starts <laughs> to, in your case, two minutes when it ends. And planning out that timeline and thinking about it in advance can be really, really helpful. There is a wonderful research article called A Time for Telling. Schwartz is one of the two authors of the article. And that's just a reminder to us that that first impression, if you want to build devices that can change people's lives, like you got me. Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. And you seem like a cool guy. Like then, then I'm you've got me, you've got my attention. And then once you've got it, like you said, to sustain it, it will be nice if I can bring in some images or if I can bring in some text. But once you learn how to edit on a timeline, you can practically use any tool because they're all like, okay, where is the timeline? How do I add a graphic in here? How do I add text in here? But your transferable skills, the amount of time it takes to learn a new one really gets reduced once you just sort of understand the concept of editing that way. And like you said, having the I think what's so powerful about your video is I see myself in it as a potential student. Oh, those are students who have taken this actual, and they're smiling, and they're showing, I mean, that, that that's very memorable from that class. And they all kind of look, as a college student, like a regular college student. They don't look <laughs> like they just are Einstein or something like that, and I could never do <laughs> this because you were intentional about lots of different people with different projects, and it really is compelling. But yeah, I mean, get us getting to be more purposeful about gathering images or some kind of data that would be compelling to people of student work to the extent that we can get permission to share students' work. I, I generally will do that now even is it okay? I'm asking for some feedback mm -hmm. on this. Would it be okay if I shared your feedback? I've got a podcast. Could I share your feedback using your name, not using your name? I mean, just getting used to, is it okay to share your work publicly? And that can be really fun too. I wanted to have you share a little bit more about the kit because Rob, all this time, I didn't even realize you had a kit. I was picturing that if I signed up for your class that I would be going somewhere. I don't know where I would go, but okay, I need to order myself a raspberry pie and a pizza pie and a whipped cream. Mm -hmm. I still remember the first time someone, I interviewed a guy named Steve Wheeler such a long time ago from the UK. And he mentioned raspberry pie. And I was like, okay, I know what a raspberry pie is. But then he started mentioning other pies, a banana pie, <laughs> banana. And I literally thought he was kidding. And every single one, I looked it up afterward, every single one was real. So anyway, I'm, I'm the ones I made up, I think are made up, but, but yes. Anyway, so tell me more about this kid and how do they get it and all of that. So it's, yeah, it's been one of the, one of the, the, the fun, but probably very stressful elements of this is just to work on electronics. You can, you can go on basic electronics, you can go on Amazon, you can order for 50 bucks, 70 bucks, a kit of basic electronics parts. But what I discovered when I was building the class was I, I, I didn't want to make just a, an electronic class, Arduino, a Raspberry Pi, similar, a little bit different, but students can learn that. And that's, that's fine. It's a useful skill. But I really wanted this, to make this idea of connecting, writing code with building something and then having it connect to the internet, so, which is which is the, the smart device part, not just an electronics class. And so to, to do that, I also wanted to make projects that I thought were really cool. And like, 
you know, we, we have a, we have early projects where lights blink on and off and that's important to do to get started, but like, that's not, you know, that's not super exciting at some point. So I wanted to think about what other kinds of components could I add that students could play with that aren't in these sort of basic kits you buy online, right? So then, then I had to work with the company, they're called Spark Fun, really cool people. And it's been a three-year process of like refining it where I say, okay, I have these variables I have to manage, which is, I don't want students to, I, I wish I, I wish it could be free. I wish students have to pay anything for the kit, but to kind of get what I want to do in the class, we can't, I can't do that. So what I do is I, I figure out all the parts. So it's like, students are going to build a smartwatch. So that's going to be the, the sense the sort of the brain, the computer that goes in there, the microcontroller, but then there's a heart rate sensor and that's a little more advanced. You're not going to get just on, on a standard sort of kit. So I add in that. And then for example, we have a, a little car and I know I've shown you and your family, this little blue little car that control with their smartphone that drives around. And so, you know, then there's motors, there's wheels, things like accelerometer measuring gravity acceleration. So what I kind of do is I assemble all of these parts in a spreadsheet and then work with, work with this company spark fund to kind of say, okay, I, I don't want students to pay anything more than like a textbook, right? I don't want them to pay. Like, I wish it was 50 bucks it ends up being around a hundred. So that's, so that's like, they come in a class, they, they pay that money for the kit. And then other parts, which ends up being sometimes that amount or more of the department is that my department is gracious and just buys that. So when students come to class, we give them the, the department purchased kit of electronics, which is all these supplies, the sensors, the motors, and then they order from the company this custom kit, which is really great. They work with the company and they like, has like a USC logo on it and they'll, they'll ship it out to students. So that's, that's sort of the two, two stage process. And like, I have, there's a few other things where in order to make a smartwatch students, they need kind of like a, vel- like a wrist wrap. So I have some TAs and I make like Velcro wraps. So, so that's like a separate thing we'll cut and we'll provide them. But yeah, that's, that's where all those, all those pieces come from because they're kind of all, all custom to do you know, things that I think they, that I think are fun, that I hope students think are fun. But also just to say, again, you were talking about the diversity of the background of my students. So I want to make sure that we reflect that. So like I have a lot of bioengineering students. So I'd love having a smartwatch in there because that kind of fits with what they're studying. And then I have some mechanical students. And so I'd like having the car because I get to work with motors. And then I have students from all over all the rest of the university. So having all the other sensors in there where it's it feels like hopefully in the same way that you said you could imagine yourself in that video, I hope that in the class, in the actual class, students can imagine then what they could do with this in their own discipline. I'm so convinced that so much of what holds us back is a lack of imagination and not not always as much as we attribute it to a lack of skills, a lack of knowledge, mm-hmm. a lack of information. So that, that, that really goes that you seem like you're helping expand their imagination while also giving them knowledge and skills. That's really powerful. And, and before we get to the recommendation segment, mm-hmm. I'd love to have you share a little bit about if anyone wanted to poke around in any of your classes or, or anything like that, your philosophy and approach to course materials. I realized, I realize, by the way, in me asking this, this could be four episodes because I'm so intrigued, but I'll try to behave myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this, this all, I'll keep it brief because this would be a, yeah, a longer conversation. And I know I've talked with you about it and you've been really helpful. When I created this class yeah, three, three or four years ago, I had a really hard time because I couldn't find a similar class across the country. I'm not trying to say that it's the first, first of its kind. I just couldn't find similar examples in, of content and textbooks because there are kids in high school and grade school, they learn about building electronics. And that's really, that's awesome. I love that. 
engineering students will take very advanced electronics classes. But I'm kind of in this middle spot where it needs to be challenging for college students, but also college students that are not electrical engineers. So that's sort of like a, how do you make it advanced and challenging without making it too advanced and needing physics and, and all that without, but also not making it so simple that it's not rewarding. So as I ended up truly struggling to build the class, I just made the whole class open source, essentially as a, I guess I would say an open educational resource, right? So what I've done is I made it, I'm just hosting it on, on GitHub, which is like a way of tracking changes over time. And it's used in software development a lot, but I use it for the course. So all the course material is, is on there, all the lectures. I, I have it kind of a flipped classroom way. So there's like little course videos. Those are free on YouTube. The assignments are there. There's lots of resources about notes. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to make it, I was really frustrated with, with having to do things multiple times. Like you have your notes, like I would teach from, but then I have PowerPoints and it just was easy to make mistakes and get lost. So I, I kind of built it so like I can have the notes page with all the, all the key notes. So students can just go online, full text search what they want. But then when I do some of the videos, I don't do a lot of lecturing, but then the notes pages will just convert automatically to be basically slides. So I have just sort of one base. So yeah, that is all free and I archive every semester. So if people can go look at previous semesters. I did, I did start the class template from another faculty member at another university. So I used his, in GitHub, you can use other people's code or projects to get started. So I did that. And then I've kind of ramped it up from there. So it's all there. I think what I've loved about it is it's much more responsive to student needs. So students have said to me, course website's great. Everything's there. It's all set up by dates. This week is due. But then we, we'd love to be able to like search very easily for something. And because it was set up the way it was and not say on, on Blackboard or Moodle or something like that, I could just go find a plugin that worked on GitHub and I added in just a full text search. I didn't have to the program and I found a plugin. And students, students love it because now, you know, just like, like us, like I'd, I don't want to like drill down to the hierarchy to find this, how the heart rate sensor works. I can just go to the search box and type in heart rate. So students, have, I found it really great. I love that I can live, it just lives up there. So yeah, if anyone wanted to, to see the electronic side, if that's something interesting that's irrelevant to you, it's all there. You're free to take a look at it. Or if you'd like the idea of, of having this course archive for whatever your discipline is, you're welcome to look at that. I would be delighted if anyone wanted to, to, to sample it or had questions about it. I'm happy to nerd out and talk about it. You know, I completely am enthralled with this. I have to behave myself because I can't allow myself to go down. Because when I go down, I will probably not resurface for a number of months. Because, <laughs> but, but that idea of letting something be linked to that is so easily changed. I mean, that I'm doing that all the time. I'm, I'm yeah. a colleague wanted to know if any of us, and I, I stepped up and said, yeah, well, I'll try to help you find a team that will participate in this business ethics competition. But I don't mm -hmm. know yet what it looks like. So I just have like click here to find the instructions because <laughs> it's a blank page <laughs> right now because yeah. I don't know enough yet. But rather than having to go all the way in and edit it and it's clunky and it takes time, I'll just, I'm, I linked to it in this particular instance to just a basic note-taking yeah. tool that is web-based and has an app and has an app on my phone and the tablet. I mean, so it's kind of a similar idea to just pointing somewhere and easily being able to make edits on the fly. And the second you do it, it's there. The advantage, of course, to GitHub is that then you are able to see 
past versions because I realized I accidentally, which I I can't believe I did this, but I have a course schedule in Excel that a friend gave me their template of. And I mm-hmm. realized I took this major assignment that had like six pieces out. And I was like, you forgot to do the save as. So you know, with a GitHub or a similar repository, they call it forking. So I always uh-huh. laugh because it reminds me of that show called The Good Place. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. watched that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fork, mm-hmm. Forking is, was used as a curse word <laughs> in that show. So I was, yes. if I could fork you, it's like, no, 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 no. That means take a copy of it and do a save as on your GitHub repository, mm-hmm. which is what you did with the other person that had a similar course. So we could go up there and even make a copy of it or fork it often then but then you can always go back to your older forks mm-hmm. to see if you if you wanted to see what it looked like a couple of years ago or that kind of stuff was really nice. Yeah, and and like I like I was saying I I had used GitHub for from a coding perspective but not from building a course website and so it was great that someone else had just put their template up for I forget even forget what course that the person had made but I I could fork their template essentially of because I, I should say for anyone that's not used it right i'm writing writing the code and as soon as i upload it it generates the website so like i all i have on my computer is could just be Evernote. basically it's in it's just in markdown which is kind of like text plus if you will so i just type those in there drop in pictures with the editor i have and once i upload it to github it, it was a little it, was, it took some effort to set up but now it's automatic it makes the web pages all set and i i also felt like i'll just add this really quick you know, Arduino is this electronics platform that I that I work with. It's open source. There's a very much culture of like in making open source and freely sharing knowledge. And so that's also why I felt like I couldn't find material for this class. I'm not going to write a textbook and try to sell this to people. Like it, it was really hard for me and maybe other people can use it. And it's sort of in the spirit of the discipline that I'm doing too. And you you helped me kind of learn about, you know, I asked you questions about about what an open educational resource was. And I maybe a couple of people are using it, but if not, I at least it's there. And when people have found it, they said, oh, this is really cool. So that's why I was also glad to just have it up there. And I, I can't do that with all my classes because they're sometimes like I'm team, team teach things, but to the extent what I can, I just, I like, I mean, we're in education, right? So I, I enjoy sharing that when I can. This is the time in which we each get to share our recommendations. Rob, I'm veering left or right or up or down because <laughs> I'm going in a whole different direction. Although I guess I can tie it to technology. Here we go. I started experimenting on Mastodon. Yes, I have an account on Mastodon. Mm. Dave, my husband, and I are paying for a host company. So we've got our own little host, just the two of us, but we're able to follow people on other Mastodon instances. It feels clunky. I'm still getting used to the whole thing. It's a whole new thing. But I started following someone named Dr. Rachel Chadwick, and she posts a lot of beautiful poetry. And I don't know a lot about poetry, and I don't read a lot of poetry, which is why it felt like such a gift to be following her and be exposed to all of these things. So I would like to read a poem that she posted. The poem is called Still, and it's by Margaret Rankle in her collection called Late Migrations. I pause to check the milkweed, and a caterpillar halts mid-bite, its face still lowered to the leaf. I walk down my driveway at dusk, and the cottontail under the pine tree freezes, not a single twitch of ear or nose. On the roadside, the doe stands, immobile, as still as the trees that rise above her. My car passes, her soft nose doesn't quiver, 
Her soft flanks don't rise or fall. A current of air stirs only the hairs at the very tip of her tail. I peek between the branches of the holly bush, and the red bird nestling looks straight at me, motionless, unblinking. Every day the world is teaching me what I need to know to be in the world. In the stir of too much motion, hold still, be quiet, listen. Rob, what do you have to recommend today? Well, thank you, Bonnie. That's hard to follow that, but I appreciate that. That's a, <laughs> it was beautiful and hard to, hard to follow up from that. So I'm coming off winter break, so I have nothing teaching related as I've been <laughs> relaxing. But I thought I have two things. One, because the last time you had me on was to talk about Severance as a sci-fi show. So I, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of, of that. And unfortunately, two flawed but really great shows sci-fi that I liked were Westworld and 1899 were both canceled. I still think they're worth watching, but that's, a, that's another episode. So what I, what I watched this year that I would recommend is The Leftovers, which is a, it's from 2014, so I'm very late to the party. But I watched it this year, at the beginning of 2022-ish, and it's basically a show where I think 2% of the world's population just disappears, completely disappears. And the show is not about, I say it's sci-fi adjacent, because it's really not about what happened to those people. And where did they go? It, that, that's not the point. The point is what happens to humanity when you try to recover from the unimaginable. And I, I think I just, well, I just happened to watch it almost on a whim. And I found it to be like a really good, sort of cathartic for coming into this wherever we are in the pandemic at this point. Like it's not, it's affected people differently. So the show is about grief and loss, but also hope and joy. And so I found it to be really good. And it's three seasons. It does come to a complete end. So if you like that, where it's like fully set, sometimes it's heavy. It's not dealing with, with the loss, but also can be very funny and whimsical at times. So that's my, my plug. And then my second plug actually does relate to what I talked about, which is there's a show on Netflix. I think it's called Our Planet. It's about it's a documentary about nature and the, the planet. But my wife said, let's watch this making of, I think it's called, I looked at the name of Our Planet Behind the Scenes. because. There, I mean, these people are filming in the cold of winter in jungles and deserts. And so she was <laughs> kind of joking that it would probably be inspiring for us as we're like, oh, this is hard to record in her, her therapy program and her office with this little camera. So we thought it would be inspiring to see like, what do, what do actual real camera crews work on? So I would say if you, if you feel intimidated by recording a, a course announcement or a course trailer or whatever, watching these amazing people, like one, one couple of people are living in a shack in Siberia for the winter to capture the capture scenes of the Siberian tiger. Other people are traipsing through like an Indonesian jungle, carrying his massive camera to capture an orangutan using a tool. So I feel like we watched and we're like, okay, if, if these talented camera crew people can do that, then maybe we can sit in a, in a small, <laughs> small office <laughs> and record, <laughs> record a, a therapy program to help people. So I, I found it really, it was fun. It was really, really neat to see. One, one last thing I'll say, though, the very last scene is a unexpectedly challenging but powerful scene about walruses. So if you're watching with children or, or just I'm just giving a warning that it's, it's, a, it's a tough, unexpected reality of things like climate change, but still might not be good for, for good to the kids. But the rest of it, the other hour is good. Just just be aware of that. 
All right, Rob, those sound like amazing recommendations. I can always count on you. I I don't think you and Jackie have ever steered me wrong. So thank you for that. (laughs) I look forward to that. And we'll have to consider whether or not the kids will be watching, at least through the last scene, that is. so. But it sounds like a wonderful, wonderful thing. Rob, thank you for being my friend. Thank you for coming on the (laughs) podcast for time number three or four now. I'm losing track. And I think we might have to talk more in the future about this whole course build and GitHub because... Yeah, I, I'm still super intrigued. So thank you for being back. I am. I'm honored to be back. And they have a joke on SNL. When the people host five times, they get a jacket. So if I if I make it to five appearances, maybe I'll get a teaching and higher education jacket. To make a jacket. Absolutely. <laughs> It'll be made from velour. That's a joke from before we started recording because our daughter got quite the velour outfit for for Christmas. So, yep. We'll get you a velour jacket. There we go. Love it. Thank Thanks, you so Ron. much, Bonnie. <laughs> Thanks once again to my friend Rob Park for revisiting course trailers with me for this episode. And thanks to each one of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly email on most weeks, you'll receive in your inbox the most recent show notes, as well as some other resources that don't show up on the podcast show notes pages. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe to get those emails. And thanks to Andrew Kroger for editing today's episode and to Sierra Smith for the podcast production support. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.